This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by the Door County Community Foundation, inspiring people to give back, to sustain, and advance the community that we love. To learn more, visit givedoorcounty.org. and welcome to the Dora County Pulse podcast. My name is Deborah Fitzgerald, editor of the Peninsula Pulse. And I think that banks are all on our minds right now. Um, that's probably because of the two bank failures that happened over the past week. Silicon Valley Bank collapsed March 10. That was making it the second biggest bank failure in U.S. history. It had a reported $209 billion in assets. The U.S. Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, which all of us know as the FDIC, transferred all deposits of the Silicon Valley Bank to a newly created bridge bank so people could access their funds. That same weekend, regulators in New York shut down Signature Bank, which had $110 billion in assets. So the federal government, through the FDIC, protects and reimburses our deposits up to the legal limit of $250,000 if your FDIC-insured bank fails. So I looked up to see what the median account balances were, transaction account bank accounts. So that would be savings, checking, money markets, prepaid debit cards. The FDIC keeps some of this data. The latest was from 2019, and it shows that the median for the money we have in our bank accounts is $5,300. The average for the average American is $41,600. This suggests that a lot of us should not be worried whether our bank fails or not, but that doesn't really seem very comforting. That doesn't mean we're not worried. So today we're going to talk about why banks fail and what the collapses say about the stability of America's banking system. And here to walk us through it all is Bob Atwell, who has been waiting very patiently through that introduction. Hello, Bob. Hi, Deborah. How are you? I'm fine, thanks. So Bob is the chairman and co-founder of Nicolay Bank. Is it Nicolay Bank or Nicolay Bank Shares, Bob? The holding company is Nicolay Bank Shares. Its uh, predominant asset is Nicolay National Bank. Okay. And most importantly, he has over 39 years of experience as a Wisconsin banker. So if he can't unpack this for us, I'm thinking no one can. So thanks so much for coming on, Bob. And the first question that I wanted to ask you is just that. How exactly does a bank fail? Or more to the point, how did these banks fail, to the best of your knowledge? Yeah, it's kind of amusing, you know, having been around really 40 years now. So bank Ah. failures are not a new thing to me. I think we had, if we, we, we recall that we had, a, I think about a thousand banks failed in 2008-10. Okay. Very few depositors lost lost money on that, but it was certainly a traumatic time. Right. And that was where the biggest ones, that's, that's when the biggest one happened, correct? The Washington Mutual Bank? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think, right. I think Washington Mutual. Okay. But there were also other extraordinary things done to kind of not fail banks by sort of stuffing them inside other banks. Oh, <laughs> uh, right. That's a... Needless complexity. I think the amusing thing when people say, why did the bank fail? What you often hear journalists and people trying to understand is they failed from a liquidity crisis. Hmm. And uh, I find that a little amusing because that's a little bit like the ER doc saying the patient died from bleeding. Ah. Well, you know, that, it's not very, 
It no. doesn't really illustrate. So what was the cause of the bleeding, right? Right. Because the liquidity crisis didn't come from nowhere. It's a, it's a manifestation or a response to the to the business crisis that the institution had. So, okay. it, And in this particular case, it's very different from 2008 to 10. First of all, you know, kind of in your introduction, if people's balances are less than the insurance level of the FDIC insurance at 250000 per eligible account, sometimes you can have multiple accounts and double that coverage. Mm-hmm. You, you really, you know, your deposits are as safe as the, you know, the, basically the United States federal government. So, mm-hmm. and that's the gold standard of safety for the world right now. I'm not saying there aren't problems there. I'm just saying that's the level of safety you have if your deposits are under that threshold. Okay. And this sort of speaks to one of the distinguishing things of Silicon Valley Bank because 90% of their deposits were uninsured. 90%? Huh. Yeah, 90 plus percent, I believe. Okay. Working with rough numbers here. So Silicon Valley was a very different bank in that it really had these really large balanced, frequently tech funds, you know, venture capital invest investments or companies that had brought in equity, maybe had $10 million on deposit to fund their investment and the growth or the, you know, the cost of building their business. So Mm -hmm. very large depositors, very large uninsured balances. But that uninsured, the uninsured balance portion of it doesn't really have anything to do with the failure, does it? Oh, yes, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Because, because this is what, this was an important aspect of the liquidity, the bank run that happened at Silicon Valley. So they had a problem. They had a business problem in their bond portfolio predominantly. So you know, banks have two types of assets, generally, loans and bonds. And these bonds are usually very high quality, like U.S. Treasury type bonds. Mm-hmm. Silicon Valley had a very large bond portfolio. So they have all these uninsured deposits on the right-hand side of the balance sheet. And the left-hand side of the balance sheet, they had an extraordinarily large bond portfolio. More typically for banks, Certainly the banks that serve the area of your listeners, you know, northern Wisconsin, which is our market area, mm-hmm. the bond portfolios are going to be significantly smaller, very much smaller, because basically banks around here take deposits and they lend money to the markets where they take those deposits. And they, they're more balanced in terms of the, the money goes into loans rather than the bonds. So okay. they had Silicon Valley had a real problem in its bond portfolio. And I'll try to describe that briefly. There was tremendous amount of cash flowed into the economy from federal stimulus at the beginning of COVID, 2020, 21, 22, and actually still sort of continuing now. And that cash flowed in as businesses were cutting costs, you know, trying to save money, getting ready for a real problem with COVID, as in many cases they were not able to operate because they were either told to shut down or encouraged to shut down. And so you had a combination of an enormous amount of cash coming in at a time when there was less need for that cash. So bank balances went up enormously, especially at banks like Silicon Valley, but also at Wisconsin banks. You could see two years ago, if you're listening to bankers crying their beer about their problems, they'd be talking about too much cash and nowhere to invest it that was safe. See, no one would ever think that too much cash would be a problem. 
Yeah, I've tried to explain to my wife how too much cash can be a problem, but it's, it's right. I did. Yeah, nobody's yeah. buying that, Bob. So yeah, but it is a problem for a bank because people want just to speak about our bank, which is probably similar to the other banks around you. Is that cash is our customers? We back that with our capital, hmm. and if we can't invest it in anything that generates a return. It's not our cash, really. It's it's our depositors' cash. Mm-hmm. What we're doing is really providing a safe place, backed by our capital, for our customers, and we want to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the functions of a good community bank. But at the same time, if we turn around and invest that in things that could come back to hurt us later, that's a problem. Okay. So then, Silicon Valley has all of this cash no place to invest it. And so it invests yeah. it in bonds, which are typically pretty safe investments. Yeah. Like I don't know exactly the composition of their bond portfolio, but, but it was say U S treasuries. So what's the problem with that? Well, if you invest a hundred dollars in U S treasuries and it's, it's say in 2001, you're getting 80 basis points for it. You're not even getting a 1% return on it. Mm. And you had to go out, you know, three, four years to even get that 80 basis points now interest rates go up four or 500 basis points. And yes, you have $100 that the U.S. Treasury is going to pay you in year five, but you're only getting 1% on that bond today or mm. 0.8%, 0.8%. So if you get in a situation where you have to sell that bond, you're not going to get $100 for that bond. You're going to get discounted back to, you know, by by what someone could buy that same instrument for today. So mm-hmm. I hope that wasn't too technical. No, it's not. It's not. I mean, it's basically you're buying something, I mean, with the hopes that you're going to make money on it, on these bonds. Yeah. But when interest rates go up, then the value of bonds goes down. So The market value of the bonds goes down. Right. Now, if you hold it to maturity... You're going to get your hundred dollars, but mm-hmm. but uh, if you have to sell it, it's going to be less. Right. So all, all banks kind of face this dilemma. Most bankers are prudent, which means yeah, they they tried to go out a little bit, but they didn't go out, you know, five, ten, fifteen years, where you're locked into that rate. Because the longer you're locked into that rate, the hundred dollars becomes ninety three dollars, becomes ninety one dollars, and yeah. the bigger the so-called underwater position is. Okay. So, so, and, and I, I want to, I mean, I want to make clear that if banks invested in bonds, you can see across the banking universe, bankers are aware, okay, I have some of these investment assets that I can't sell at par. And so where Silicon Valley got hurt is their bond position was huge. How huge was it? Do you know? Well, it was 55% of their total assets. So, wow. Or, you know, their, their assets were over 200 billion. So it's had over a hundred billion in bonds. How unusual is that? Banks that hold that much in bonds are called bond banks because it means they usually don't <laughs> lend a lot of money. They just prefer to buy bonds. They take deposits and buy bonds. Okay. And they do that, you know, either because... They don't want to take the risk of lending money or the place where they're gathering those deposits doesn't need the money and and won't borrow it. So they have nothing to do other than put it in bonds. Which sounds like their profile, right? Yeah. Yes. They couldn't deploy it as fast as the cash came in. So they put it in bonds. Okay. And not only do they have a really large bond portfolio, I mean, the postmortem on all this is being done. They extended it out so that if they had two or three year maturities in those bonds, they're sure they were going to lose money, but they're not going to lose that much money because it's only a two or three year rate position. So the hundred dollars is only $98 or not. It's not $93 or something because you're out seven, 10, 12 years. Hmm. So 
an unusually large bond portfolio, an unusually long bond portfolio in duration, four to 500 spike in interest rates, and 90% of your deposits uninsured. Hmm. Very, very unstable bank. So okay. despite the fact that they were extremely well-regarded in the industry, I mean, you could go back and look at what investment analysts were saying about Silicon Valley. They were one of the darlings, which frankly is one of the problems is uh, kind of arrogance, right? I mean, we're Silicon Valley, and you sort of saw that last week when they announced, hey, we're going to sell a portion of our bonds, take a $2 billion loss, and but don't worry, we're going to raise a billion eight in equity. Well, and the equity raise failed. People said, well, I'm not buying your stock. You know, you just mm. rolled off a billion eight. So but there was a little bit of hubris in that, either that or desperation. But in the background, I suspect you had the regulators saying, you guys got to do something. Yeah, that was going to be my question. Like who now you have bank employees, you have bank managers, and, you know, presumably they are the ones who are actually watching all of this, right? I mean, who says, you know, you are set up for failure right now? Like who is looking at the banks to make sure that something like that isn't happening? Yeah, well, let's be clear. I mean, the people responsible for crashing Silicon Valley Bank are the managers who manage Silicon Valley Bank. Okay. So, however, yeah, yes, there's regulatory oversight. In the case of Silicon Valley, it would have been the state of California, I mm. think, the Federal Reserve. I think the San Francisco Federal Reserve was involved. And then, of course, when things look ugly, that's when the FDIC gets involved. The FDIC is the undertaker of the banking industry. Uh-huh. So when a bank Great. is nearing failure... They're the people who have to, you know, clean it up. Okay. So, yeah, where were the regulators? Well, that's, so now you're getting from the, hey, the patient died from bleeding to, okay, why was the patient bleeding or why didn't someone prevent the patient from bleeding? Okay. You look at the regulators, you look at, you know, I think you frankly have to look at the policy landscape. But before we do that, Deborah, should we talk about how Wisconsin people should feel about Wisconsin banks? Absolutely. Yes. I mean, that is is the point of this since, you know, I think you've kind of given us a good picture of of how a bank can fail. But we want to know, of course, is how do I know that my bank is safe if I'm in Wisconsin? I, I don't have a a banking background. I don't even have a financial background. I'm pretty much yeah. trusting, you know, that my bank is safe. So yeah, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the Wisconsin banking yeah. environment. So first of all, to reiterate, you know, as long as you believe in the full faith and credit of the United States government, if your deposits are under 250000 you don't really need to worry about your bank. You should care about your bank and you should ask the questions, but mm-hmm. your money's not going to disappear. Okay. So really the question you're asking is, should be on the minds and is on the minds of the uninsured depositors, the people with the larger balances. Mm-hmm. And so how should they look at the banks that are in the pulse region? You know, banks like Associated or us or, or Bank of Luxembourg and, 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 and the credit unions are a factor. You know, first of all, in general, now I haven't done the detailed analysis on everybody, but I'm confident in saying the banks that serve this area do not have massive bond portfolios like that. They okay. have a, They'll have a much smaller proportion of their bonds. Their money is in their loans. And and so if you want to understand the risk to the bank, you should look at the core industries that this area consists of. Okay. And if you don't mind, I'm just going to take a minute to have people reflect on that because that's important to understanding why this is not Silicon Valley. This okay. is the Fox Valley, Wisconsin River Valley, you know, Door County, the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, 
the Chippewa Valley in our case, you know, these are the places that we serve and that the, generally the banks that people would bank at in your area serve. Mm-hmm. What is the underlying economy? I put it in four categories. It's fiber, by which I mean wood fiber. Mm-hmm. So it's everything to do with cutting wood, processing wood, making paper, converting paper, packaging, huge area here. You know, this area is kind of like the in many ways, is one of the global brains of the paper industry still. Okay. And so it's fiber. It's food. It's dairy. It's meat, cheese, vegetables, and all of the things that go with processing, storing, packaging, shipping that food. And then it's manufacturing, which, you know, it's a big deal in Sturgeon Bay. Mm-hmm. And if you, and it's a big deal down in the Fox Valley or any of these, any of these northern places. What type of manufacturing? Well, if you look at the manufacturing, it's very oriented around those core industries, mm. you know, fiber, food, et cetera. In Door County, of course, shipbuilding is the biggest industry, shipbuilding and maintenance mm-hmm. and the related things. You know, you got Marine Travel Lift, you got TTX, you got all these companies that are manufacturing companies that provide very basic things to very basic industries. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the point of all that is those three things are very, very stable things. And you can see that year in and year out. The unemployment rates in Wisconsin, the delinquency rates, the charge-off rates for the banks, basically the quality of the banks reflects the underlying economy, which is by its very nature, it's very stable. Okay. And of course, the fourth pillar throughout this whole area, and especially in your Door County market, is recreation. Mm. It's the North Woods experience, it's lakes, streams, and old fashions and ribeye steaks. You know, it's, it's the experience. <laughs> and fish fries. That, you forgot fish fries. Fish, fish fries. broils, fish fries. You yes. love to, yeah, you love to come to northern Wisconsin for all of these things. And we certainly saw in COVID, while at the beginning of COVID, we were scratching our heads saying, wonder, wonder how hard these industries are going to get hit. The demand for those uh, for that product, that Northwoods experience and the lake experience exploded. Sure. Property values went up. Everybody wanted to be there. They want to get out of the city. It drove uh, that pillar up. What we were constrained by was our ability to meet that demand, which essentially with people. Mm. You know? And that's frankly still a problem uh, yes. that we could talk about on another podcast. Yeah, right. Definitely. But, but I think if you want to understand the health of the banking here, look at the health of the underlying economy. So does that mean, so if you're looking at those four pillars, then you want to know if your bank is making loans and investments in those pillars? Yes. Does your bank serve those basic things that you can look around? Because then you can look around yourself and say, well, how stable is my bank? Well, how stable do I feel about all these people and places and companies that I know and I deal with? Because mm-hmm. that's that's where... If those, if those organizations are doing well, your bank is going to be doing well. Okay. And, and you'll also know. So the loan to deposit ratio is important. Okay. You know, you can look that data up. You can say, does my bank have only 15% of its assets in securities, in okay. bonds? And that's the loan to deposit ratio. And yeah. you can find that on any bank's website? Not necessarily on the website. You just look at their financial statements. Oh, got it. Okay. Uh, which are which are publicly available through the FDIC website, or if they're public like us, you can go to the SEC website. You can ask your bank, actually. That's another... Yeah, there uh, you go. You, you can ask them to give the numbers and sort of let you know a little bit. And by the way, your bank should feel... I mean, our people are fielding calls from people saying, I, I'm hey, sure. you know, can you tell me what's going on and how's your bank? And uh, frankly, those conversations go very, very well. I think when you explain to people 
I think they kind of know it. You know, this is Wisconsin, and are you doing crazy things? No, we're serving Wisconsin. Right, right. Does the loan-to-deposit ratio, is that like the single most important ratio indication of health of the bank? No, it's not the single thing, but if you want to look at the current crisis, which is very concentrated in bonds Mm -hmm. because of the sudden change in rates, there's other ratios that matter, but that's sort of a quick screen. Like okay. how loaned out are you, which which is kind of the inverse ratio of how big is your bond portfolio. Yeah. So what is good? What is a good ratio? Yeah, you know, 85, 90%. Okay. 80%. It was just a problem for Silicon Valley that they had 55% in their bonds, which meant their loan to deposit ratio was 45. Yeah. Right? Okay. And it would normally seem you know, what ratios you should look at depends on the, the particular crisis you're in. But, ah, interesting. But this one is a bond crisis. So the first thing is, how big is the bond portfolio? So I think what I would say in general, again, I haven't picked apart everybody's bond portfolio, but, I, you know, for the most part, bankers in Wisconsin are pretty prudent and the history speaks to that. And so, mm. you know, I, I would be surprised if each of the banks and credit unions people deal with, if they bought bonds in 21 or 22 they're going to have an underwater position in those bonds. Even if the bond is good, you can't sell that bond today for exactly what it will be worth at maturity. Okay. So that that's sort of a mark to market that that I think most banks, I, I really almost have to say all banks are sort of dealing with that. It's like, how much of that are they dealing with? And, and then what are they going to do about it? Okay. Because I think what you're going to see is kind of a bifurcated world where some banks have already announced that they've sold their underwater position, hmm. took the loss on it, and they've reinvested in bonds. And actually, they've reinvested in other things, like even paying off high-cost deposits. And they just wanted to put the sort of the overhang behind them. And be, why? So that they could, so it's more clear that how much money they're making just on their core business. Did they do this after? Is this a post-Silicon Bank failure move, or were they doing this prior? There are several, I think, New York Community Bank, you could look up, did it. The ones that have announced it prior to Silicon Valley were ones that were strong enough, and that position was small enough that they just wanted to put it behind them. They did it. They did it by choice. Okay. I think we're going to see some, and you certainly saw it with Silicon Valley, who, you know, couldn't afford the choice, Mm. but made it anyway. Okay. You know what I mean? So I think there's going to, you're going to see some banks as we move forward that may do that as a positive choice to position them the way they want to be positioned. Mm. And then you're going to be some banks that's like, holy cow, they have to sell. And then you're going to be some banks who just look at it and say, I don't like the position I'm in, but I'm going to wait five, six, seven years, and I'm not going to make as much money throughout that period. Or maybe the Fed will drive rates back down again and I won't be looking at this negative number in my bond portfolio. Hmm. So now in 2008, the banking crisis then and the bailout then, that had to do with lending. Exactly. It had to do with a whole different section of the balance sheet, which was what are the loan, what are the problem loans that the banks held? And the bonds were the good part of the bank in, in in those years. So that's always you know, problem loans is always what bankers kind of have on their mind. And I think, frankly, this data is publicly available as well. The loan quality in Wisconsin actually perennially is much better, especially in the further north you go, the better the loan loss experience of banks is. Uh, If you look nationwide, loan losses in Wisconsin are among the lowest in the nation historically. Okay. And again, just picture Wisconsin. It's a work ethic place. It's a place where people take the responsibilities to each other seriously. 
it's a small place where, you know, if you don't honor your obligations, you know, the neighborhood's going to know. And uh, so in general, there's just a culture of soundness in Wisconsin that permeates the banks as well. And it permeates the borrowers of the banks. So if you look real time right now, there's not evidence, there's not substantial evidence of loan quality deterioration. Okay. However, not to, you know, if we stay in a recessionary place or we go go into a real recessionary place, you're going to see some problems emerge, but they're just not there now. Okay. So it's yeah. comforting to hear, you know, what you're saying about the banking industry and climate in Wisconsin. This may be a question that is a little bit too far deep in the weeds, but it's just coming up as you're talking about this, how antithetical the two types of failures are to each other. Like one is almost the mirror failure of the other, the opposite failure of the other. And what I mean by that, mm-hmm. if it's if Silicon Valley has failed because of the bonds, let's just, you know, reduce it to that. Then in the 2008 banking crisis had to do with bad loans, then that's the opposite. So there was a lot yeah, of... Absolutely. That's very well said, Deborah. It's a this is, I would say, a deposit-driven problem. It was a problem of too much cash. Again, back to trying to explain to my dear wife, Sally, okay. how too much cash can be a problem. <laughs> it was an imbalance on the deposit side, which then sort of, there was a strong incentive to push money into the bond portfolio further out in order to put that cash to work to earn something. So mm-hmm. yes, it was kind of came out of what bankers would say, the right-hand side of the balance sheet, the liability side. Mm. Your assets are the deposits in the bank. We owe you that money. That's our liability. So yes, this was a right side of the balance sheet problem driven by this excess of deposits that could not be deployed. Okay. It wasn't created by the fix from, you know, the regulations and then the deregulation and all of the different things that happened following the banking crisis. Was it caused in any way by those things? No. Okay. So the bleeding has nothing to do with anything that happened back then. Like this is not an overfix. No, I mean, it's always bankers breathing their own fumes and doing things they shouldn't have done. You know, it's, Mm -hmm. it's, it has that similarity. Okay. But I don't think, I don't know if you were asking this, but I would, you know, remember Dodd-Frank, 1,400 pages of law passed Mm. in 2012 to sort of fix banking. So we never saw 2008, 9, 10 again. Right. Apparently didn't do that job, but created a lot of stuff. So Mm. I'm not saying the impulse was wrong. You know, Barney Frank co-authored that, and he was on the board of Signature Bank. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Barney, your law didn't work. Okay. But but anyway, <laughs> uh, and people might get mad that I say that, but honestly, they can get mad at me if they want. It's true. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think the other thing, if we want to sort of get back to saying the banks are struggling, if they go broke, it's going to be because of liquidity and get beyond that. I don't think you can understand the situation unless you roll back to 2020. COVID hits, everyone's in a panic. The Fed stepped in big time to drive rates to zero right Mm -hmm. away. And over the course of the next several years, Congress did $7 trillion worth of stimulus to businesses, individuals, hospitals, state governments, municipalities, universities, just a flood of money, which economists equate to the level of stimulus we saw in World War II. Hmm. It was unprecedented with the exception of World War II. We took very aggressive, what macroeconomists call stimulative measures, 
and it was a wall of cash that just kept flowing. And unlike World War II, it was coupled with a policy to either force, encourage, or pay for people to not work. And so the safer at home policies reduce supply while the zero interest rates and the trillions and trillions of dollars of stimulus were creating demand. Mm. I mean, this is a very clear picture. You could call it inflation. It's getting measured as inflation, but I would say it's currency debasement. It's guaranteed to make the dollar worth less Mm. in real terms. So this was a federally caused environment, which then irresponsible bankers made mistakes in. Mm-hmm. And this is not to sort of wade into the, you know, could the war on COVID have been conducted differently? People have different opinions and it's all very controversial, but, but I, I just the economic piece of it, if you suppress supply and use World War II level stimulus, you're going to have inflation. Mm-hmm. And frankly, you know, again, I'm blaming the bankers at Silicon Valley Bank are to blame for Silicon Bank failing. Mm-hmm. But for the Federal Reserve to be saying in 21, and even into 22, that inflation was not a problem. It's high school math to know that it's a problem and that it's going to be a problem. Okay. And maybe a PhD prevents you from seeing what is very common sense. I don't know. But I, I hope they weren't being deliberately dishonest, mm. but it's kind of inexcusable if you're in that position that you wouldn't understand what's going to happen. Okay. And so then we have this, again, unprecedented since at least the early 80s, 450 to 500 basis points of short-term rate spikes in order to stop inflation. If you look at the Fed's language recently, they've been talking about, the language is almost militaristic. We need to stop and reverse GDP growth. What are we looking for in order to stop raising rates? We want to see higher unemployment Mm -hmm. and we want to see wages stop rising. Right. Doesn't it just sort of seem weird to hear your central bank say it does that. always seem very strange. Yeah. And every time the jobs report comes out, I think it just came out last Friday. Well, we're, you know, the economy hasn't slowed. We haven't lost oh, any shucks, jobs. Oh, oh, shucks. People are still employed. Oh, yeah, yeah, Wages I know. are it still is, rising. You know, it is like, very what? strange to, to hear that. I'd make a bad central banker. But I, I mean, look, <laughs> those guys should not be above criticism. And that's what I'm leveling, really. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I mean it. And other people might disagree, but, but I've lived it and I've seen it and... And I think they should own it because this is just not some sort of overheated economy that naturally emerged from the swamps of out-of-control capitalism. This is mm. actually a result of extraordinary federal action. So let's own that. Why? Not so we can kind of blame everybody, but so we can learn. And it might have an impact on how the Fed should look at control of inflation right now, mm. because maybe they should calm down and realize inflation is going to be with us for a while. And yes, you've raised rates. Let's see how this goes. If you, if you talk to a lot of business people, as I do, they'll tell you inflation is moderating. The supply chain is kicking back in. Mm-hmm. People are coming back into the labor force. No, people can't get as many people as they want, but it's not like it was a year ago where you know people could come work three weeks and then quit and then go down the street and start another job and work three weeks and quit again. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not like that anymore. Yeah, so maybe right. things are getting better. And maybe the Fed should just kind of stop trying to use monetary policy to solve a problem that's more complex and more centered in government action. This episode of the Door County Pulse podcast is brought to you in part by Door County Medical Center. Are you looking for a job in Door County with excellent benefits, culture, and potential for advancement through tuition reimbursement programs? 
Door County Medical Center is hiring. For more than 75 years, Door County Medical Center has been the leader in health and wellness for Door and Kiwani counties. Their integrated medical center provides a wide range of specialties, including primary care, behavioral health, general surgery, the Women and Children's Center, the Door Orthopedic Center, the Door County Cancer Center, and more. To join the team, apply today at dcmedical.org slash careers. Well, you know, it seems to me that there, and I'm, again, I am clearly not an economist, but in the 70s, wasn't there inflation of 13%? I mean, we haven't seen something like that. This was close to that, but not quite there. Can't we learn from those mistakes? I mean, isn't that something that we can learn from? Or, or are each one of these financial crises too individual? You know, you can't learn what you don't want to learn, Deborah, right? <laughs> well, yeah, and I don't know how similar they are, and that'll People probably... People are really good at not believing what they don't want to believe. Mm-hmm. So, yes, we should. The problem I think we have, you know, and this gets into the whole of politics of the thing, but it, it you know, Congress is in a situation where people are not popular if they say, hey, we can't spend all this money. We're not without finding revenue to pay for it. You can't just... You can't just sort of shift the deficit onto your children, grandchildren's plates unless you want to, you know, Mm -hmm. because maybe, maybe you don't care, you know, (laughs) some people don't, but the politicians basically, you know, they get elected by doing what people want. People like free stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a problem if you're a politician, if you want to say, wait a minute, this is going to cause problems. I mean, it's a lot easier to say, well, I got smart guys around me telling me it won't. So Mm -hmm. I'll believe it, but. I think that could probably be a conversation that we have on another podcast in terms of, I think where you're going, yeah, where you're going there is actually who stuck the knife in the patient that caused the patient to bleed. So, (laughs) Or or who didn't put the guardrails on the bumper cars so they smashed their head or whatever. Right, right, exactly. And I don't want to, listen, I realize people have different political perspectives. I hope you and your listeners are okay with me offering the insight that I have from sitting in the chair I do. And and I could be wrong about many things. I I have been, but I don't think I am here. Yeah. Well, I'd like to know what you think happens next. So where do we go from here? Is there going to be a bunch of fallout? What happens? Yeah, I think uh, so. The Fed and the uh, FDIC took extraordinary action over because, you know, so they had Silicon Bank had this 90% of unsured deposits. And basically after a whole lot of terror and furor from the uninsured depositors on Sunday, they announced that the uninsured depositors are in fact insured, mm-hmm. despite mm-hmm. the fact that the bank didn't pay for the insurance, whereas smaller, you know, insured people do indirectly pay through their bank. But Okay, but anyway. let's, let's back up there. So all of these uninsured deposits were covered? Spontaneously insured. They were told they will get their money on Monday if they want it, even though you, you know, Originally, the uh, FDIC said, if you're under 250000 you can come get your money on Monday. If you're over 250000 you're going to have to wait. We're going to give you part of it because we know we have it, and then you're going to have to wait till we liquidate the assets, and we'll see about the rest. Okay. And Now, am I saying that was a bad decision? People can debate that totally reasonably. I think if, if you'd not done that, I think they were acting in goodwill. I think they knew that you were really going to just amp up instability among uninsured depositors, regardless of how strong their bank was. So mm-hmm. I think it was a, a measure taken to stabilize things. And we can dispute the you know, justice of how 
smart people who knew their deposits were uninsured suddenly got them insured and whether that was right. But as a measure to say, wait a minute, you know, let's stabilize things. Probably if I were in the chair of the FDIC, I'd be doing the same thing. Okay. Uh, what would I do if I were the FDIC chair? I would might go to blanket uninsured coverage, which is what they did in 2009. Basically say, okay, there's no limit on deposit insurance. They have not done that yet. They could do that. Mm-hmm. Probably would do that if we saw further panic. Okay. So why would you do that? Well, you still you still got to sort out. The FDIC will have to sort out who's really underwater. So which are the, and they'll, they did this in 2008, 9, 10. Like which are the banks that are so far out of bounds that we got to figure out who they are, give them a little time to try to sell themselves or raise some capital. And then, and then if not, we're going to fail some of them. And we're going to make sure the bankers know that, you know, if you're one of those banks that does these imprudent things, then, you know, you're going to pay the price. So Okay. So they have some kind of a bead on these banks on which banks have. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I'm sure like if you're the FDIC, all the things we just talked about, we're a national bank, OCC bank, the Office of the Comptroller of Currency, and, and our regulators are very smart. I mean, they are smart, and they're straightforward, and they're people of goodwill. I promise you they're looking at their banks and saying, who's got a large bond portfolio? Who's got a large underwater position in their bond portfolio? Mm-hmm. How strong is their capital? What's the loss they would take? And how big is that in relation to their capital? I know the investment analysts have sort of got their screens about who the who the weaker banks are, but mm-hmm. but if you're the FDIC, you want to buy time to sort all that out and then figure out which ones can be rehabilitated. You know the the Fed. You know everyone's talking about what's the Fed going to do? Are they going to back off this? You know a week ago, everyone, the Fed was talking like we're going to go up another 150 basis points and we'll keep going after that. So whatever it takes to break the back of inflation was kind of the way the Fed was talking. Mm. The Fed's rapid increases are at least an occasion of this crisis. So should the Fed be, is the Fed reevaluating that position? I would, I would, I I don't know, but I think so, you know? Um, So you might see the Fed actually stall or increase more moderately. If you look at what the markets think is going to happen now, they think the Fed's going to slow the rate of increases and maybe even start decreasing rates. If they decrease rates, that underwater position diminishes for the banks. So they can, if they bring rates back down, this all works itself out over a couple of years. Right. Whether they choose to do that or not, I don't know. Well, that seems like a very complicated situation since they've been increasing rates for something that's entirely different from what we're talking about. Then you would decrease rates just to help out some banks. <laughs> that doesn't sound real good, does it? It doesn't sound like a, <laughs> it doesn't sound like it doesn't sound like a policy that you would want yeah, to except, base your operations upon. Except, if you want to create a recession, you know, a sick banking industry will have a big impact on how severe the recession is. You know, do banks lend money? Are they in condition where they are, can lend money and all that stuff? So, the health of the banking system is relevant to everyone, mm. even though it sounds horrible. That hey, why why are you why would you run policy around making the banks happy? Mm-hmm. Well, because, you know, because the banks back to your banks and in our, in our area, they, you know, what are they? They're really, a, they're a mirror of the people that live and work in these areas. And mm-hmm. so. It seems to me that it, it would be a smart policy to try and make banks happy. But if it is just a few banks that have poor management, then it would seem like it would be a reactive policy. So if they were to react in that way, then that says to me that there's more going on within the banking industry than meets the eye. 
that it isn't just a few isolated instances, that there is, you know, something fundamentally wrong at play here. Yeah, you know, I've I've looked at the screens. We do our own internal analysis of stuff here, and we kind of did a screen of the Wisconsin banks, all of the banks in the state, to kind of identify which, which based on the information we have available, you know, kind of who would really be vulnerable. And, and frankly, there's very few and hmm. really none in your area that, that we would assess that way. Okay. But I think to your point, what you don't want if you're a federal regulator trying to stabilize things is you don't want the bond problem to become a loan problem. Yes. By having the economy really tank. I mean, if you're the Fed, you got to be revisiting this sort of hawkish language about stopping and reversing growth and wanting the GDP to go down and wanting unemployment numbers going up and wages to stay flat or go down, you know, you, what, what, mm. you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> what, what, I think you'd have to be revisiting that and saying, maybe we got to live with this inflation thing for a little while and maybe give it some time to work its way through. Cause this is a little different than other kinds of inflationary cycles we've had. I, I, I'm not, you know, some people, interestingly, on the left and the right, some of them, you know, sort of have a burn the bastards down, let them all fail kind of attitude. Mm. And I, I think what's wrong with that is I think there are some very significant problems in the banking industry. And it, just from the standpoint of how we think about it, not the current crisis, but I think that there's things, the dynamics in the industry that are fundamentally unhealthy and we should revisit the idea of burning the house down because despite the fact that there's even a chance that you know, there's a chance to not have it burned down. Is is just I, I don't think that's. I just don't. I don't. I don't agree with that position. I don't. I think that would cause a lot of pain that people don't need. And as long as you have a chance to kind of learn and figure out how to do things better, why wouldn't you take that chance? Okay. And by the way, people who look back on 2008, 9, 10, if they think it's kind of they bailed the banks out, well, they definitely bailed out some big banks. Yes. That, you know, were much worse than the smaller banks that they did fail. But people should not think there weren't failures and there weren't bankers that got sued and weren't shareholders who lost all their money in banks. That happened. Like I say, I think there were close to a thousand banks that failed mm-hmm. during that period. Wow. Now, there, people didn't lose deposits. Basically, as time went on, the FDIC, whether banks were insured or not, kind of went through a process where they liquidated or sold the banks to somebody in a way that all the depositors were covered, uninsured or not, you know. Okay. I don't want to create any misinformation, you know? Well, I'm pleased with that because we definitely don't want to do that. (laughs) Yeah. There is enough of that out there right now. I just want to stress because, you know, what I'm saying about the banks in Wisconsin and in the area you serve being characteristics that are so fundamentally different from Silicon Valley Bank and Silicon Valley region that, you know, if you're a bank today and you had all those deposits, you've probably got some underwater you know, treasury and other instruments, and and you should be making a decision. You, do you want to just kind of live with lower earnings for a while, or do you want to make the decision to sell some and move forward? And then there are going to be some banks that are, you know, and holy cow, you know, they don't have, a, they're not doing it out of a position of strength. They're doing it out of a position of weakness. So you can see, you'll. I think I don't know how many banks will do what, but again, that trend started before Silicon Valley. In those cases, it was the banks that that are strong and can afford to do it. And so I think that process will continue as we go through time. So, Bob, I think you've really illuminated a lot of this issue and probably rested a lot of fears that people may have surrounding this and whether or not, you know, their banks are safe. 
it sounds to me like there could still be some bank failures, but call your bank, find out what your, what was it, loan to deposit? Well, you can look at loan to deposit if you want to look at numbers, but I, I just think, I think it's a good place to start is to talk to your bank. Yeah. And, uh, talk to your bank. It's okay. It is okay. Your bank should not be offended if you say, hey, can you tell me why I can feel good about my deposits at your bank? And, right. and I think you said, we've said this, but I want to make it clear. If you're under 250, you've got FDIC insurance. Right. In practice, in the last crisis, very few uninsured depositors actually lost their money. But as of yet, there's been no decision taken by the FDIC to do that. I would not be surprised if they did, but mm-hmm. I don't control that. So, right. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think if I'm the FDIC, I want to stabilize the situation and figure out which banks are really in trouble and can be dealt with in an orderly way. I think mm-hmm. that's always better than... So, yeah, I think the policies, if you're the federal agencies, you're trying to figure out right now, how do I stabilize things? And then how do I figure out the aftermath and figure out which banks to allow time to rehabilitate, which banks are just fine, which is going to be most of them, and which banks really are just uh, like, what were you thinking? Okay. um, And we may see see more of those. So that is not another time to panic. Yeah, I'd be surprised if you don't see the FDIC fail additional banks, but but I would expect they'll do it in an orderly way. And I don't expect uh, to see that in our area. Okay. Okay. All right. Well, you heard it here first. And you've heard it from an expert in the industry. Again, this is Deborah Fitzgerald with the Door County Pulse podcast. And I'm talking with Bob Atwell, who is chairman and co-founder of Nicolay Bank Shares. And he's been a banker now for, what, 40 years. So thanks so much, Bob, for coming on and talking with us and making us all feel better about the money that we have in our local banks. (laughs) All right, Deborah. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Door County Pulse podcast. If you want to support us at The Pulse, check out doorcountypulse.com slash shop, where you can get a weekly Pulse subscription, purchase some incredible Door County artwork from Pulse artist Ryan Miller, and much more. We hope you've enjoyed the Door County Pulse podcast, and we will see you next time.